Good morning. There we go. I'm going to begin this morning by reading uh, the passage that we'll be looking at. If you would like to uh, stand for the reading of Scripture, you're more than welcome to, to, to do so. This is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning since the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice sin is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. You may be seated. So the passage we're looking at this morning as we continue our our study of 1 John, as we've been in this for a number of weeks now, uh, this passage gives us a chance to ask ourselves a a pretty important question, one that often comes up when we're thinking about the things that that matter most to us in, in our life. And that question is, what is expected of me? What do I have to do in order to, to be successful or, or to do things in the right way or to live my life in the right way? When we start a new job, oftentimes what we want to know is what's expected of us, of our administrators, or, or what are our clients or our customers' expectations going to be. If you enroll in a class or, or a training to learn something new, one of the very first things you do is you take that syllabus or you take that, that training material, material and you start going through it trying to figure out what are the tests going to be like, what questions am I going to be asked, what books might I have to read, how are my grades going to be calculated. Last year, I became a, a father for the first time, and my life practically exploded with, well, what am I supposed to do now sort of questions, or what's expected of me now? How do I feed this baby? Where is she supposed to sleep? Uh, when do I start teaching her things? What, what kind of a car seat do I need? How does a diaper genie work? For those of you who may be unfamiliar, the diaper genie is a very fancy trash can that keeps the diaper and the smell all locked in, but you also uh, need like an engineering degree to make sure you set it up correctly and, and use it right. So it's, it's a common human desire to want to know what you're supposed to do and, and how to do it and how to do it well. It's, it's, it's something that we all kind of feel deep inside of us. We want to do the things that we do well. And in the letter of 1 John, I think we can find a lot of guidance and encouragement in how to go about our lives in such a way that allows us to obey the things that God wants us to do, that we, that we can understand God's expectations and try to live that way. So far as we've studied the, the, this book of 1 John, we've seen that we are supposed to walk in the light as, as he is in the light. We're supposed to have a close fellowship with the Lord. We're supposed to keep his commandments that we find in Scripture, paying particular attention to those that call us to love God and love others. We're told to be careful not to fall in th- love with the things of this world uh, and, and be sure that we are not deceived away from, from the things that we know to be true about God to believe things that are not true. And last week, Pastor Steve told us about how we're supposed to abide in the Lord, trusting in Him for our salvation and believing in His work that, that, that He is going to return and that He will eventually make this world more glorious than, than it is now and than it has ever been. 
Hopefully, it's been encouraging to you to read 1 John and even inspiring to go through this book and see how God wants you to experience life, how he wants you to have full hope and trust in him and and have your obedience to him born out of a love for all that he's able to promise you. And I think the Apostle John wrote this letter in order to be uplifting and encouraging to Christians. He wanted us to know that the Christian life of obedience to the Lord is both clear and attainable in the sense that with the Lord's help, you really can live the way that John describes and the way that God desires. However, if you're like me, there's also been a question lurking around in the back of your mind as you read these things throughout this letter. All right, maybe a question that's a little bit hard to ask because of how, how frightening it is or, or how scary it is to confront or wonder about. Because I can clearly see as I read this book that there's a lot of really wonderful, beautiful things about following the Lord and, and wonderful things about having a relationship with Him. But there's one big thing that sometimes I'm afraid might stand in my way of, of progress in, in my Christian faith, in my, in my walk with the Lord, and maybe even bring everything crashing down. And that's this big question of, what am I supposed to do about the fact that no matter how hard I try, I keep on sinning? What am I supposed to do about the fact that no matter how hard I try, sin is still a part of my life? What is expected of me as a Christian in relation to my sin? Do I have to be perfect? Is there, if there is any amount of sin in my life, if I do anything opposite to the will of God, have I ruined everything? and made myself his enemy once again. I want to believe that I'm a child of God, but if the children of God are known for their righteousness and known for their lack of willful disobedience against God, well, where does that leave me during the times where I make mistakes and I do disobey the Lord? Because if I'm being honest, even on my best days, all right, even on those days where I feel almost almost seamlessly connected to the presence of God, I know that occasionally I still choose to love something from this world. Or I may, I may slip up and, and choose anger or hatred toward another person. Or at times I'll decide that the commands of God are, are too burdensome or too limiting for me to obey. And in those moments, I commit sins. And so where does that leave me? And if this has been your experience, if you've ever asked these questions as well, where does it leave you? What is expected of us as Christians in relation to our sin? John will hit this question pretty head-on this morning, and, and he does so in such a blunt and sudden way as you're moving through the passage, he just sort of throws this in there that it can be so shocking. We can get so focused on the severity of his words just in these few verses that we forget what he's also taught throughout the, the five chapters of this letter and what the Bible counsels about Christians and their sin overall and God's expectations for how we're supposed to live. So ultimately, what we're going to hopefully see is that our challenge is to live with this tension that while it is true, we should not sin. That, that is the truth of Scripture. We should not sin. It is also just as true that the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ are powerful enough and trustworthy enough and more than good enough to deal with our sins in a way that, that, that preserves our relationship with the Lord. With that in mind, we're going to jump into the text and, and consider these, these questions today. So 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, told us that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
Now, it would be absolutely understandable if someone were to come to these verses, to come to these texts, and read this and determine that perfection, that sinlessness, is what is expected of anyone who calls themselves a Christian. All right, it certainly sounds that way there. John says that, that Jesus appeared to take away our sins, and so the logical following of that argument would be, well, he must have done that. And so anyone who's a Christian must have had their sins taken away. That must be not, no longer part of their life. On top of that, verse 6 says that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and then John will double down on this idea in verses 7 through 10, where he says things like, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and no one born of God keeps on sinning. The problem with just focusing on those verses and interpreting, interpreting their meaning kind of in these absolute terms to, to mean that as a Christian you cannot sin, the problem with coming to that conclusion is that it fails to apply what John has already taught us in the book of 1 John, about what happens when, when, when sin takes place in our lives. In the, chap- in the first and second chapters of this letter, the apostle tells us in no uncertain terms that, yes, Christians are going to sin, right? The good news is that Jesus stands ready to forgive those sins. All we need to do is go to him, be honest with him, confess our sins, and trust that he can take care of the rest, that he can take care of, the, uh, of what has happened to us in our sin. In 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 9, a few weeks ago, we studied these verses where it said, if, anyone, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. And there's just a few verses after that. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, who is righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but of the sins of the whole world. So being a follower of Jesus does not mean you must be sinless, right? Being a follower of Jesus does not mean in the absolute that you must be sinless. Until the day that Jesus returns and under his power, where he comes to purify, purify us as he is pure, we will continue to sin, And that's not really something that we celebrate. This is a sad, tragic reality of the world. We don't want it to be true, but it is the truth. We will continue to to sin. And so we will also continue to need Jesus. We absolutely depend on him for the forgiveness of our sins. And part of the glory of the gospel is that through our faith in Jesus, we are forgiven not just once and not just twice, not just for the big sins or for the little sins, but for every sin that we commit now and forever as long as we go to the Lord, as long as we continue to trust in his power and in his love, we are forgiven for our sins. That's the height and the depth and the breadth and the everlasting power of God's love for those who know his son, Jesus, and call him Savior and King. Being a follower of Jesus does not mean you must in the absolute be sinless. You can trust Jesus to faithfully keep forgiving your sins. And as John, as John said in verse 5, you can trust Jesus to do this work that he set out in this world to do and take away your sin, eliminating it so thoroughly that it can no longer be used against you. However, y'all knew there was like a however or a but coming here, right? Being a follower of Jesus does mean that your habits and your patterns of sinful behavior ought to change. All right, being a follower of Jesus, being a Christian means that your, your habits and your patterns of sinful behavior ought to change. It means that you should be trying to sin less, right? Sin should be more infrequent. It should be diminishing in your life. In verse 4, John says that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So 
Sin is one of those biblical words that gets tossed around so much that it's easy to kind of forget or lose its meaning or just kind of have it mean something, but you're not actually sure exactly what to call it. There are no fewer uh, than 12 different Hebrew or Greek words throughout Scripture that could be translated as sin, and a quick glance at any, at any Bible concordance will show you that there's lots and lots and lots of, of references, and each time the, the definition is somewhat hard to pin down. And so I'm going to give you a definition of sin this morning that will not capture every nuance or complexity, but will provide us a common understanding for what we're talking about when we say you don't want to sin, that sin is lawlessness. All right, sin is our selfish opposition to the will of God. Right, sin, when we sin, we have selfish opposition to the will of God. Ultimately, when we sin, whether through our, our words or our deeds or our thoughts, we are telling God that we believe we know what's best for us and that we don't need him. All right, sin is tragic. It is treasonous. It is rebellious. The underlying intent of sin, no matter how small, is, is to take God's place as our sovereign king. All right, is to replace him as, as the king and the ruler over the universe and over our lives. So when John says in verse 4 that sin is lawlessness, he's saying that our selfish opposition to the will of God is far more than just breaking the rules, all right? It's rejecting those rules and the rule maker. It's the kind of disobedience that reveals our disdain for something that God requires of us and, in its worst forms, our disdain for God himself. Our sin makes us participants in lawlessness, and it draws us further out of the world or further into the world and away from the Lord. All right, so all sin is bad. Like that should be a message that comes very clearly through Scripture. All sin is bad. You don't want to be a participant in sin. But what John is most concerned with in these verses is not necessarily the occasional sin or our our episodic or the sins that, that you commit and then you're able to repent from and walk away from. What he's concerned with is chronic or habitual sin, right? John is calling out those sins that we return to, the sins that we never really truly repent of, the sins that we decide are worth more to us than our obedience to the Lord, or worth more to us than following the commands of God. John is warning us against the dangers of the practice of sinning, of holding on to sin so tightly and desiring it so deeply that we refuse to give it up and instead go back to it again and again, rejecting the will of God every time we do. All right, John's talking about this pattern, this, this habitual chronic connection, this refusal to let go of, of a certain sin or certain sins. God understands that we're going to continue to struggle with sin, even after becoming a follower of Jesus. And he knows that you're going to fail at times, that you're going to fall short of perfection, and that from time to time, you're going to be flat out disobedient to the things that he commands, to the things that he desires. He's prepared to forgive you if you seek him out and say you're sorry for the things that you've done. But he's also expecting you to make real life change. Right? That is an expectation from Scripture. As a Christian, sin cannot dominate your character. Right? As a Christian, sin cannot dominate your character. It cannot be your normal habit or practice. We should each be living in such a way where the will of God is obviously something we're drawn to, right? where the will of God is something we wish to obey, and that, in fact, that, that sin would become the, the surprising or the strange outlier to most of the, the, our behaviors, to most of the things we do in life. And when we discover sin, we're readily, we are ready to, to confess it, to flee from it, far away from it, and, and identify where we've disobeyed and come before the Lord with that, with that knowledge and that confession. If you choose to keep on sinning, 
then John says you, you can't abide. You can't have a fellowship with God because you really don't know him at all. If, if you had known him, you wouldn't continue to choose to walk in this way, is, is what John's warning is. That's what his concern here is in this passage. And I know that sounds harsh, and it might even be scary because when sin becomes a habit, when it becomes a regular practice of our life to, to selfishly oppose God, it can be really, really hard to walk away from. It can be extremely hard to, to root out and to get out of our lives. Changing our ways and giving up something we've deceived ourselves into enjoying is, is not easy. But part of the reason I think it's so hard that we often, that it's so hard to walk away from sin is that we believe that what God expects of us is to simply go cold turkey on it, right? It's to simply say that we're just going to cut it out of our lives, we're going to resist it as hard as we can, we're going to move on. But that's only half of what we need to do. That's only part of the picture of what it means to truly engage our sin. Yes, we want to let go of sin. We want to release this hold that we have on these things that are awful and that are corrupting our hearts toward the Lord. But we also want to pick something else up that can fill that void, that can be actually better than those things that we were following after in the first place. And that's what John says is the alternative to sin that we really wanted all along. It's what we're truly made for. Instead of being plagued by sin, John says that we can be blessed and filled and satisfied with righteousness. Look at verses uh, 7 and 8 here in John, 1 John 3. John says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, as, as Jesus is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning since the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, it's easy to read this passage, it's easy to read these verses, and just get so focused on the dire warnings of a sinful lifestyle that we miss John's instruction on what to do instead of the practice of sinning. But in verse 7, there's actually a really wonderful promise here that can change everything. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as Jesus is. Being a follower of Jesus means that you will, as often as you can, choose and practice righteousness. In the same way that making a habit of sin puts you in opposition to God, making a habit of righteousness, of being in right relationship with God through the willing and joyful obedience to His will, all right, in, in that same way, that will prove that you are committing to a life to be becoming more like Jesus, to becoming more like Christ, who was our perfect example of what it means to be righteous. And verses 7 and 8, John draws a pretty clear line in the sand. He says you can either practice righteousness and follow Jesus, that can be your goal, what you strive for, what you work toward, what, what, what your heart's desire is, or you can practice sin and follow the devil. There is there is an intentional, uncomfortable lack of middle ground or gray area in that statement. You are either for God or against Him. You either confess Jesus as your Savior or you walk away from Him as, as someone that you've determined you, you don't really need. And you reveal which side you're on and who you're really committed to following by whether you practice sin or whether you practice righteousness, which one you pursue with your life, which one really dominates your desires. And again, you have to remember that this doesn't mean that you will never sin. It does mean that your life will more often than not reflect the sort of things Jesus wanted to see in the hearts and minds and actions of those who love him. 
right? What we should be seeing in a life that is, that is pursuing righteousness is a tendency towards grace and mercy and a tremendous willingness to forgive others. All right, we should see a deep and growing love for the Father, Evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control should be welling up inside of your heart and defining your character. A readiness to sacrifice for the sake of others, to love people who don't deserve it, even those people that we might consider our enemies. A boldness in sharing the truth and in telling the story about our salvation and telling other people about Jesus and telling other people about the gospel, which can bring them away from their sin and into this life of righteousness. Practicing righteousness includes all of this and more. It's the sum of what Jesus taught us to do and how to live. It's why we study scripture. It's why we gather here on Sundays together to worship together, to learn together. It's because we don't want to have a life that's grounded in sin. We want to have a life that is, that is grounded in the joy of being found righteous and, and acting in righteousness before the Lord. And I promise you, there is joy, right? Obeying God really does feel like walking in the light. There is beauty and wonder in following Jesus that is nearly impossible to really describe well, but, but when you're in it, you know that, that, that peace, that goodness, that strong feeling of this is the right way to live. It's what Jesus was trying to tell us in Matthew chapter 11. If you go there and look in verses 28 through 30, Jesus told us to, to come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Far too often, we think resisting sin is just about shutting down a bad habit and gritting our teeth and just, and just putting our feet down and resisting temptation to the greatest of our ability. And sometimes there are days where it really is that. It really does feel like that. But God doesn't command us to just stop doing bad things. He also invites us to do better, beautiful things instead, right? He tells us not to give our love and our devotion to lifeless created things because instead we can give our love and our devotion to him and experience this, this incredible everlasting relationship, all right? God tells us not to lie, not to cheat, not to steal because instead we can live honestly, depending on the Lord for what we need and building meaningful, trusting relationships with the people around us. Sexual immorality is one of the most common places that people feel this draw toward, toward habitual sin. It's one of the most common places where that really, really sinks its claws into our hearts and makes it very hard for us to, to, to get away. But God doesn't forbid things like premarital sex or the use of pornography in order to impose restrictions or ban satisfaction within relationships. It's because sex is something that he created. And so he knows where, it, where, where its best application is where, where it is, where its best and safest and most satisfying expression is. And he tells us it's within the bounds of a committed marriage. There is always something wonderful and lovely and beautiful about righteousness, and that's what God is trying to invite us to understand and to see and to follow. See, there's this truth that we, that, that we forget too often, and it's that you won't be able to stop your practice of sinning if you don't also embrace the practices of righteousness, all right? If your focus is just simply on stopping and not picking up something that's better, it's not going to work. It's going to feel too burdensome, and you're going to go right back into that pattern of sin. Because the truth is that God is not a dictator, right? His commands are not arbitrary or pointless. God is the king of true life, and his invitation is to, is to come to that life through obedience to his commands, which results in righteousness, 
So his expectation is that we will all, as often as we can, to the best of our ability, choose righteousness. And we could look over this passage for hours and continue to comb it for, for, for incredibly powerful things to, to learn, but there's one more subtle and yet in, important point that I want to be sure that we pull out in verses 9 through 10. And there it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident that we are children of God, and who are not the, and I'm sorry, by this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John continues this clear warning, making a practice of sin, committing to a life that is selfishly opposed to the will of God, makes a true relationship with God impossible. However, he also adds this crucial reminder to to what it means to to be part of a life that that is diminishing sin and growing in the pursuit of righteousness. And it's this, it's it's not that we try harder, all right? Our ability to diminish sin is not because we try harder or we work harder or we become more legalistically bound to, to following everything that God commands. Our ability to reject a lifestyle of sin and take up a practice of righteousness is because God's seed, or, or, or which is a unique phrase for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the Lord dwells within us because we have been born again of God. It's the relationship with God that allows us to walk away from sin and walk into righteousness, right? The power to break your practices of sin and embrace practices of righteousness is not your power, but God's power within you. You don't have to figure all of this out on your own. You don't have to find a way to be strong enough on your own. Eliminating sin from your life is not a matter of self-help or self-effort or self-anything else. It is something that is accomplished through dependence, partnership, and reliance on the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Trust that God loves you. Trust that God wants what is best for you. Trust that God's power and promises really can help you live a life where you sin less and practice righteousness more each and every day. It is only from that place of trust and dependence that you can truly live, live a life where you're making these changes and move into, into a practice of righteousness that, that draws you further and further into his presence and closer and fellowship with him. I do want to share one last thought. Um, I'm sure that for many people in this room or, or for those joining us online, Dealing with your practice of sin means confronting your struggle with addiction or perhaps conf- confronting certain aspects of, of mental illness where, where, where sins manifest in certain ways from that. And I'm sure that many of you also have friends or, or family members or loved ones who suffer from these sort of things and wonder how on earth you're supposed to be, you know, how, how you're supposed to help them, how you're supposed to be their ally, how you're supposed to help direct them into into practicing righteousness when, when it, it seems that these things have has such a control, such a hold on, on their, their capacities or, or uh, their abilities. No matter the circumstances that surround your sin, I want you to know and, and hear from your church and hear from your pastor here this morning that we understand that things like fights against addiction are serious and they are difficult. They are not easy. All right, we know that, that, that fighting and resisting those sort of things is not something to be taken lightly, and it's not something you can just wake up one morning and decide to change. All right, at Faith, we want to be a community where we celebrate and praise God for your victories and your growth, but also be a place where you can be honest before the Lord in your moments of despair or defeat. We believe God's love and his willingness 
to forgive is stronger than your addictions, all right? It's stronger than anything you may suffer from. It's stronger than your afflictions. It's stronger than your mistakes. A life of righteousness is not beyond those who suffer from addiction, right? It's not. Because I promise you, without any doubt, God has not abandoned you. If you want help dealing with, the, with these big sins, if you want help dealing with these, these big, scary, deeply entrenched sins, please seek us out. Please let us know, right? We're not going to shame you. We're not going to judge you. We're going to do our best to lead you into the presence of the one true God who takes away the sins of this world, yours included. All right, each and every one of us can make a life of practicing righteousness because our good and loving God is here to help. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, this morning, I pray that each of us feels led and convicted to confess the sins that we need to. Lord, to confess our, sin, our, our selfishness, our lies, our anger, our hatred, our greed, our immorality, anything like this, Lord. And, and, and more than that, we appeal to you and your incredible grace for forgiveness. Teach us, Lord, to walk in righteousness and to desire the good fruit of obedience. Teach us to find joy in living more and more like our Savior and our example, Jesus Christ. It is in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us? Your grace is more